Hello and welcome to the Unfuck Your Biz podcast, a show for creatives to encourage and inspire through actionable legal, tax, money, and business topics. I'm Braden Drake, an author, lawyer, tax pro, and educator. If you are ready to get your legal and tax shit legit, you are in the right place. But before we fully dive in, here is a quick word from my sponsors. Oh, hey there. Quick question for you before we dive into the episode. Do you know if your hiring practices are compliant under your state's laws? This is something that I've been talking about on the podcast for the past couple of weeks, and it's something that I'm going to be talking to some of my students about in the next couple of weeks. I've just created a new course called Unfuck Your Hiring, which is going to be a mini course to help you determine what the contractor laws are in your state and how you can properly onboard contractors and subcontractors into your business. So if you're interested in joining the program, it's going to be really short. We're going to go through it in one week, starting the week of Monday, June 26th. It is $100. There's uh, three little modules of course recordings. You can go through those in about an hour, and then we're going to do three live Q&As. So you'll get the Contractor Compliance Framework Training. That's what I've named the framework that I'm teaching to you in the program. And then we will discuss how to properly onboard your contractors, and you will also get a contractor agreement template. So this is the contract you need to send to onboard your contractors. So again, it's $100. It's going to be really, really fun. We already have about five people signed up. Um, I imagine we'll get, you know, a few more. Hopefully you are one of those people. And if you are interested in learning more, you can check it out in the show notes. So hop on over, sign up, and I will see you in class. Well, hello there, friend, and welcome back to the podcast. As always, this is your host, Brayden. And today we're going to be wrapping up our contractor law series. So the past few weeks, we've been talking about independent contractor laws I did an episode all about California's contractor law with all of the litany of exceptions that we have. If you're in California, go back and make sure you listen to that episode. It was titled, Do Your Contractors Need to Be Employees? We probably should have put like something about California in the title, but that's okay. Then the past two weeks, we did episode uh, with episode interviews with two of my friends. And then today I'm going to be talking about contractor laws by state. If I could have, if I could go back and redo it, I probably would have done this podcast episode first that maybe would have made a little bit more sense, but here we are. So what I want to do for you today is another kind of blog reading. So that's what we did on the California episode. This is, this tends to work really well for me. I tend to get, it's like good for me to outline everything in a blog, write it all down. And then I could like restructure it into a podcast episode, but you know, honestly, I've already done all the legwork. So I might as well just read the blog to you. Um, I think I probably just tell you all that I'm reading it so that you understand why it might sound stilted sometimes. I probably, you know, could just like do it without the warning, but that's okay. I also know that nowadays, not everyone wants to like sit down and read a full blog and that's okay. That's why we have a podcast, lots of different streams of content for whatever you may fancy. So let's get into this. All right. Let me 
hop over to my blog. So contractor laws, state by state, we will link this in the show notes because what I'm going to do is I'm giving you kind of the introduction. We're going to talk about the different types of contractor laws that there are in all the states, but I'm not going to go through every state. What I actually am doing on the blog, and if you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen this, is every day I'm adding a new state and I'm providing like the very general rule that they provide in that state. So that's what's happening. I think yesterday I went up to, where are we? We are up to Indiana. So probably like a third of the way through the alphabet maybe. And we'll be adding more as we go. So why do we care about this topic? Well, misclassification of employees as contractors is a heavily litigated and high-risk area of the law. Employees have a lot of skin in the game because being misclassified affects their taxes, disability, social security, and other employment benefits. Many, many contractors are intentionally misclassified by their employers, so those employers can save some money. And courts are cracking down, states are cracking down, and the rules are getting more and more strict in most states. To stay in compliance and avoid lawsuits and penalties, it's important for us as business owners to stay on top of the law. Many creatives like yourself are in an odd position because a lot of these laws are coming down on large businesses who intentionally misclassify workers and all of the business, smaller businesses are getting swept up into those rules as well. So who are the interested parties involved? Like who cares about these laws? Well, you may not care who cares, but understanding the finer points will help you wrap your brain around the whole thing and why this is such um, an overwhelming topic, such a large topic. You get what I'm saying. So the first interested party is the IRS, obviously. Our dear friend, the IRS, cares about anything that's going to remotely impact tax collection. That's their job is to collect taxes, right? They want to collect as much as they can. We all pay taxes on our income, so that's simple enough. But why should the IRS care how we receive that income, like how workers receive their income? Like, why does it matter if we get paid or if we pay people as a contractor versus an employee? Does that really matter? The answer is yes. If you've ever been an employee, you likely had the first well damn moment of, if I worked 40 hours and made $10 per hour, why the hell is my paycheck $400, right? I know that was me like when I got my first job in high school. Like I worked, who's you know taking all this money out of my paycheck? That's the tax withholdings, of course, right? Employers automatically withhold taxes from employees and send those taxes to the IRS. The IRS loves this because then there's a very high likelihood that they're gonna get the taxes they are owed. Contractors, on the other hand, not so much. Contractors, the IRS thinks contractors can be a little bit shifty. That's probably based in some truth. They may not report all their income, and many employers are not properly sending 1099s for payments made to contractors. I won't bother researching the exact data uh, on this because you know it's already going to be a long podcast, but we can assume the IRS likely loses out on millions and millions of dollars in tax revenue each year from contractors who do not report their income. So this is why the IRS cares. State tax authorities also care because most states, I think except for like six or seven, also collect income tax. The state agencies responsible for collecting those taxes have the same interest as the IRS. They also prefer employees and oftentimes have more resources to pursue action against misclassifying businesses. Typically, the states are what we really want to worry about 
actually. It's we don't get in trouble with the IRS all that often for these kind of issues. It usually happens at the state level, specifically with their um, like labor institutions. It happens sometimes with the tax institutions, but more often with the labor institutions. So different laws for different circumstances. Um, oh, I also forgot to mention the workers and the businesses have a vested interest as well, right? So there are pros and cons to being a contractor or employee from a worker perspective. So when I say worker perspective, let's say you're a business owner, the worker is the person that you're hiring. So I use the term worker as like a, like a neutral term, right? Because the whole issue is whether this worker is a contractor or an employee. So whenever we're talking about independent contractor law, I always refer to people as workers because we haven't defined what role that worker is yet. Hopefully that makes sense. So from a worker perspective, being a contractor allows more freedom and flexibility. Awesome. Yay. Contractors also get to take more tax deductions. Also great. But on the flip side, contractors do and typically should have more out-of-pocket expenses and they're responsible for a higher share of taxes. There's more for them to manage and do. They're basically, any contractor is basically running a business. This is why it bothers me when people say, oh, I'm just going to be a freelancer, not a business owner. Well, freelancers still have to pay their own taxes, do their own tax returns, do their bookkeeping. It's the same thing. All right. Businesses, on the other hand. So when I say businesses in this context, I'm talking about hiring businesses. So the people hiring the contractors. Businesses may prefer to hire contractors because it's a simpler process and it may be less expensive. I say may because the taxes will certainly be less as well as the benefits. However, contractors may demand a high, higher rate. Also, an employee may be more vested in the company and a better long-term investment. So this is something that I talked with Ashley Ebert about uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Emily and I talked about this as well, but I remember Ashley specifically, she really pushed back on this notion of people saying they don't want to hire employees because employees are more expensive. And she said, well, yes and no, but really her argument was more no, because typically you're going to pay employees a little bit less per hour to balance out all the extra expenses that you have. And then in the long run, and if an employee is worth works with you longer, they're more vested in the company, they're going to work harder. They're basically, she's arguing that oftentimes an employee can provide you more bang for your buck than a contractor might have. And personally, I think this depends on the circumstance, right? If you're hiring someone that you want to be able to grow with your company, an employee is probably going to make a better, more sense as a long-term investment. If you need to hire someone on a project basis, sometimes it's worth it to pay a hefty price for a very, very well-qualified contractor to get the project done. And then they move along to another client. Okay, so different laws for different circumstances. As you can see, there are a lot of vested interests involved in this topic when it comes to employment issues, and we have different rules for different circumstances. For example, one set of rules may apply when it comes to tax withholdings for the IRS. Another set of rules may apply at the state level in consideration of employment benefits. The IRS has the lowest standard. It's the easiest rule to meet for hiring and uh, hiring entities. So if you're a business, the IRS actually has the easiest standard, means it, most, it means it's the most business friendly. Many states have more stringent rules that make it more difficult to work with contractors. But generally speaking, if you meet those state rules, you shouldn't have trouble with the IRS. For this reason, the simplest way to go about this is to first and foremost focus on your state's 
requirements. To my knowledge, and you know, I'm gonna knock on wood, all that kind of stuff. Uh, don't take this as like 100% true because I haven't looked into it enough. But from everything I've read so far, I don't think any states have more lax standards than the IRS. So this is why I say, if you figure out what the rules are in your state or in the state where your workers are working and you meet those obligations, then you probably should be okay. So which state laws matter? Most of us erroneously look at the contractor laws in our own state and we call it a day. States pass laws to protect the residents of that state. Therefore, you need to be on top of the state laws in each state where you have or plan to have contractors. For example, if I, a business owner in California, hire a virtual assistant who lives and works in Florida, I need to know that person can work as a contractor under Florida law. That would what that's what would be important there. All right, so the different tests. So we have a lot of different tests across all 50 states, but I kind of put them into three different camps. So luckily we don't have like 50 different tests. We probably have honestly like five to 10, but a number of them are so similar that we can kind of like lump them together. So most states are going to fall into one of these three camps. I call them camp one, the totality of the circumstances states, type two, the ABC test states, and type three, the modified ABC test states. So in the rest of this podcast, I'm going to break down what these tests are. And then kind of your homework is to figure out which test your state uses. And by the way, I'm actually running like a very small group program starting next week. What day is that? Anyway, I think it's like June 28th, I want to say Monday. Um, But starting next week, we're going to run it. It's going to be three. It's going to be one week long. Uh, I've already recorded all of the training videos. We're going to have three live Q&As. It's only $100. I'll share more with you about it at the end of the podcast. But think about doing that as, as I'm going through this information. So camp one, the totality of the circumstances states. In camp one, we have states that use what they might call the common law test or the IRS test. There are actually several different tests that fall into this camp. But what's important is that um, A, they place the burden on the worker. And we're gonna talk more about that in a second. That's a good thing for us hiring businesses. And also the R, what us attorneys call totality of the circumstances tests. So I'm going to kind of teach you this through some potential analogies. And I wrote my blog post about this while I was watching RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. So we're going to give some drag examples. So if you've ever seen the show, you know that RuPaul says that the next drag superstar must have charisma uniqueness, nerve, and talent. That spells out an acronym that I'm not going to say on the podcast, but those are the four characteristics that RuPaul looks for in the next drag superstar. So pretty clear, right? But if we look at this, maybe, you know, we're watching our favorite season and we see that all of the finalists have some degree of each of these four traits. So how are we going to go about determining the winner? Or how about if each just has two or three or maybe one of these traits. It's, it's kind of a silly example, but think about this. The judges, ideally, are going to weigh all of the factors. So maybe one drag queen has three factors, but charisma is off the charts. She would make a compelling case 
to be the next drag superstar. This is the essence of a totality of the circumstances test. Here's another example. Currently, uh, athletes are gearing up for the Tokyo Olympics. Unlike track and field or swimming, where athletes make the Olympics simply by being the fastest, athletes in team sports are chosen by committee. It'd be easy for the gymnastics selection committee to simply choose the four gymnasts with the highest total scores of the qualifying competition, but it does not work like that. While there are four members, only three compete in each event at the Olympics. Therefore, someone could maybe be the second best overall gymnast while having the fourth highest score in each of the four events. But this person might not be the best fit for the team if they can manage to field a team with the people who are the best three on each event. Does that make sense? Instead, the committee is going to look at the team composition and then looking at each athlete, they will consider their event strengths, how difficult the routines are, since difficulty equates to a higher score, as well as their consistency, experience, and so forth. So maybe one person does really, really well at Olympic trials, but they might say this person has a history of inconsistency. So we're not going to take that gymnast. We're going to take this other person who has maybe slightly lower scores, but we deemed to be more reliable. There's no simple rubric or checklist. The committee must look at the totality of the circumstances and make a choice. So fun fact, side note for you, Michaela Maroney was selected for the 2012 Olympic team solely to compete on the vault. She was so good. She'd regularly score a half a point above everyone else in the world on that event. When medals are won by tenths of a point, that's a huge advantage. So when analyzing the totality of the circumstances test, there may be certain factors that really tip the scales, like Michaela's vault. That was one factor that really, really weighed in her favor that got her on the team. A person can argue that while they don't meet all these factors over here, they do meet the others, which should be more heavily weighted. Ultimately, it's the judge's decision whether a worker or an employee is a contractor based on the factors. So I hope all those kind of analogies and stories helped you out. The point of this is, is that with all of these totality of the factors tests, there are going to be a number of factors. And factors is the key word here, okay? Fact, they're called factors, not requirements. Because when we have factors, we're going to look at all of them and we're going to weigh them against each other. So if you ever went to court, they're going to say, in this state, we use these eight factors, these 20 factors, whatever. And you're going to go through them and you're going to provide supporting evidence that you've met as many as you deem that you've met. And then you're also going to argue which ones are most important. And sometimes the law tells us which ones are most important. They'll say, these are the four very important factors and these other 13 are helpful. So you're going to really emphasize the four and then you're going to show supporting evidence for the others as well. And then the judge is going to weigh all that information and make a determination as to whether that worker should have been a contractor or an employee. Okay, so the burden of proof. We have one added wrinkle. Most legal claims place the burden on one of the parties to prove their claims. So if you didn't already know, my husband is a prosecutor with our local DA's office. When he charges someone with a crime, it's generally his or his office's burden to prove the defendant committed the crime. If the prosecutor can't demonstrate that proof through solid evidence, the defendant walks free. This supports our assumption in the United States that people are innocent until proven guilty. Under the common law and IRS tests, the burden of proof is on a worker or whomever is bringing a claim against the hiring entity. If a worker sues their hiree, if their hirer, let's say for employment benefits of some kind, 
that worker would have the burden of proof to show that under the totality of the circumstances based on the test used in that particular state, they should have been an employee. That's a high standard, which is good for the hiring business. So what are the factors? Currently, the IRS test looks at three primary categories. So they look at behavioral control, financial control, and the type of relationship. I could recurgitate these details, but it's better to go straight to the source. So I have a link here uh, to the IRS that goes over all of these factors. These three primary categories are relatively new for the IRS. Before this test, they used a 20-factor test which is simply and typically referred to as the IRS 20 factor test. If you wanna really look at the factors, you could just Google IRS 20 factor test as well. It's not like identical to what they're using now, but these factors in the 20 factor test is what a lot of states use. Um, most states are gonna use some variation of these. So they might only use eight of them, 10 of them, whatever, but it'll help you start to understand what factors they're typically looking at. Interestingly, Although the IRS has abandoned this test, most many states have recently decided to use it as their own law. If you read that your state follows IRS rules, you should A, know that there's a lot of similarities and you need not stress too much over the differences, but B, it's still good to know whether the state is using the three category test or this 20 factor test. So go check those out. So that's camp one, our totality of the circumstances test. That's more pro-business, pro-hiring entity. Camp two is the ABC test states. So rather than using a common law test or the IRS factors, these states will use what they call the ABC test. Under the ABC test, a worker must meet the following to be deemed an independent contractor. A, the worker must be free from the control and direction of the hirer. B, the worker must perform what is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. And C, the worker must be customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as the work performed for the hiring entity. I'll break down these points in a moment, but first we need to hammer home one very important point. The ABC test is what us hip and cool lawyers call a burden shifting test. So we discussed the burden of proof a few moments ago. The burden in the other test we talked about in camp one lied with the worker. Under the ABC test, that burden shifts to the hiring entity. If there is a dispute as to the worker status, it's the hiring entity's responsibility to prove that person is a contractor. In other words, the worker is initially presumed to be an employee. It's the hiring business's responsibility to prove the worker either meets the ABC test requirements or one of its many exceptions. If you're thinking, oh shit, that is the correct response. This is why we must really get our shit together now. Now that I have sufficiently scared you, let's dig some more into the A's, the B's, and the C's. Parts A and C are relatively straightforward, so we will start there. You know what? I'm actually going to kind of skip through this part. I'm not going to read you all the information on the A, B, A, B, and C because I break these down in my previous podcast. So if you find out that you're in a state that uses the ABC test, go listen to that. Um, if you're not in California, all the exceptions that I talk about might not be relevant, but the discussion on the ABC test in particular will. I just don't want this to be like a full hour long podcast episode. I'm surprised I still have your attention at this point. So <laughs> I'm going to try to keep that. Okay. So 
The third camp, camp three, is what I call the modified ABT step. ABC test states. The modified ABC test is a term I kind of made up. I think I may have read it somewhere, but we'll roll with it. And it makes a lot of sense. Okay. Some state laws essentially require you to meet the A and C requirements of the ABC test. Other states require you to meet A plus B or C. I actually think these states make a lot of sense. Part B is our very problematic requirement for most businesses. In California, we have dozens of exceptions that allow businesses to get around the ABC test. However, if you look at all the exceptions really carefully, what you'll notice is that pretty much all of them still require you to meet, meet parts A and C of the test. So really those exceptions just get you out of part B. So for some added context here, part B is our rule. Let me go back and read it to you again. Part B says the worker must perform work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So it, it, let's break this down. The question is, what's the usual course of the hiring entity's business? Well, if it's something that you do in your business on a frequent basis, like if you're a photographer, you photograph things. So if you're hiring someone else to come and photograph things, that would be that your usual course of business. By default, that does not meet part B of the ABC test. And you can see how problematic this is, right? It's pretty simple. If I, as an educator, like an online business owner, hire a copywriter to come and write copy for my sales page, it would be pretty easy for me to argue that's not in the usual course of my business. Like I have this education company, this person has a copywriting company. They are a pretty clear example of a contractor, right? But if a copywriter hires another copywriter to subcontract work because they have too many clients, now it becomes a problem with part B. So to get around the ABC test, at least here in California, they have a lot of exceptions, but a lot of those exceptions require you to not have a certain amount of control over the worker. That's part A of the ABC test. And they also require that that worker have their own business and be independently established in that business. And that's part C of the test. And there's like more specific requirements you have to meet in those exceptions. So this is why I say they really just help you get around part B. Okay, so that was our breakdown of the tests. And if you want to go learn more, you can go check out my blog post. Uh, you'll see that I have just a little blurb on each state. I try to provide some links to helpful resources. Um, I do want to give a lot of caveats and warnings, though, that this stuff is changing on a regular basis. Like I found one pretty comprehensive resource that told me that Arkansas, I think it was Arkansas, used the ABC test. But then I did some more digging and learned that in April, they actually did a way in April of two years ago, they did away with the ABC test and replaced it with uh, the IRS 20 factor test. And this, it all really comes down to politics. What happened was a lot of the more liberal legislatures want the ABC test because it's more worker friendly, so they think. And then a lot of the more conservative legislatures kind of, you know, undo that when they get into power, you know how this works. And I also know that during um, like the pandemic, there was a lot of shifting around with these rules in some states as well. So whenever you're doing your own independent research, make sure to pay attention to dates. So especially if you're reading like blogs or news articles, read the date, because if you find two resources that are contradictory, you want to know which one is most current. That's the easiest kind of way to tell. So 
like I mentioned before, we are doing a group. I keep calling it like different things. It's a course, it's a group program. It's a little bit of everything. Really. It's like a three lesson course that's already recorded. You can go through it. And there is an independent contractor agreement template in there as well. And it's called unfuck your hiring. It's just designed to help you figure out what the contractor laws are in your state and then what you need to do to properly onboard contractors. So for example, here in California, like I mentioned, we have a lot of exceptions to the ABC test. So the first thing you need to decide is if you're hiring people who do provide services that are within the usual course of your business, then is there a proper exception that applies? And if yes, what are the requirements of that exception? Well, most of the exceptions require you to have a contractor agreement in place, a contract between the parties. They require you to be able to negotiate fees. They require the contractor to have a business license. So in this course, I provide some really simple tips on how you can make sure you're meeting each of those requirements. Like I mentioned, it's $100. It's going to be um, one week long, super fun, super simple. And I'm hoping that at the end of the week, you'll have all the answers to the questions regarding whether you're workers need to be employees or contractors. Now, if you deem by the end of the course, by the end of this one week program, that you actually need to be hiring employees, then I would refer you out to an employment attorney to go and do that. Because at that point, you'll need a little bit more help, but it's something we can explore in the program. So if you have any questions, shoot me a DM on Instagram. And either way, I'll be back in your podcast earbuds next week. So I'll see you slash talk to you then. Have a good one. Hey there, before you go, I wanted to give a quick thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. If you loved it, I would love for you to take a screenshot of the episode or snap a quick selfie while you are listening. Share it on social and give me a tag. It'll help other kick-ass entrepreneurs like yourself find the show. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Meanwhile, let's roll up our sleeves and unfuck that biz.